Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This podcast may have explicit content. It also has this implicit request. If you follow me on Twitter, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? It's Thursday, July 11th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Now, many, many people have reached out to me to share this sad, it's really a tragic story, but one that would seem to support a somewhat controversial stance that I've taken over the years. So as you know, I am for plastic straws, three reasons. One, they are an infinitesimally small fraction of plastic in the ocean, 0.03%. Two, They're useful and bring a small amount of delight to me as a human, maybe you too. And three, their alternatives are terrible. Now, usually when we think of alternatives, we think of, you know, how some environmentally conscious cafes give you a paper straw. Paper straws, of course, melt like margin in Mesa quite readily. But this story is about the more stalwart substitute, the metal straw. Permanent, bold, and now we know, quite deadly. A 60-year-old British woman died when using a metal straw, having tripped and impaled herself on the apparatus. I will not make light of her. No, 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 no. Nor will I, though it may be tempting to do so, nor will I exploit her tragic death to advance my argument. Plastic straws are good. You heard the reasons that I listed. Also, there's the reason that people with disabilities use them much more easily than paper or metal. But I've been hesitant to embrace that argument. I almost feel like that that's meant to shut down people, to shame them. And a very small percentage of people who need to use plastic straws are disabled. But I will not be trotting out the rationale that metal straws can kill you. I mean, apparently they can, but it is such a rare occurrence that we shouldn't scare ourselves. If I am to construct my arguments based on logic and fact and empiricism, I do not wish to resort to the scare tactic of deadly metal straws to win the argument. If I were an activist, I might go there, but I'm a journalist. So this brings up a question, though. Journalist though I am, can I also be considered a hero? Hero is such a loaded term. I'm simply a man, a man like any other, who wishes to bring to you the unvarnished truth, but will not go so far as to point to that truth to win his argument. By telling you about the scary, potentially lethal, well, demonstrably lethal, horribly lethal, metal straws. Perhaps the question can be raised, were I to be a truly responsible person, would I even be bringing this incident up? Wouldn't the more actually ethical thing to do be to ignore it entirely. Tens of thousands of people die every day. 
why am I even obliquely using it to bolster my points or as a bank shot in support of my long-standing and logical position? But why are you asking those questions? Those are good questions, but really, who, who let you in here? Get out now. And please, as you get out, do not feel the need to use a metal straw as you almost certainly will not die if you use one. It is so statistically unlikely that you will impale yourself in the eye and die as just one person did. Well, just one person that we know about. On the show today, presidential executive order. He did it. He did, he signed it alone in a room without anyone having to counsel him. That's something he did. Just ask his henchman. Sorry, checks notes. Your attorney general, William Barr. Good evening. Thank you, Mr. President, and congratulations on today's executive order, which will... But what is this wonderful order that's been getting all these four-star Yelp reviews? We'll find out. But first, Vince Houghton runs the Spy Museum and is both a highbrow author of scholarly texts and a fun chronicler of the crazy shit our intelligence community comes up with. Guess which one we're going to talk to him about? Ideas like having bats attack Japanese addicts. And, well, I don't want to step on all the other good ones, but let's just say that Vince Houghton is here to discuss his new book, Nuking the Moon. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let's say the year is 1986 and you're assigned to the Soviet embassy as a cultural attache. You want to have a meeting with uh, maybe even a possible defector. So, of course, you can't bring them into the embassy. You meet in a park and maybe you take a walk so you can't be tracked. And the birds are chirping. You find a park bench each facing the other way. There is this damn cat that keeps coming up and rubbing your leg. But what can you do when you have your conversation? So what went wrong? Aha! What if I told you the cat was actually a listening device? Well, that was would be fiction, but not as fictional as you thought. It's one of the stories in Nuking the Moon and other intelligence schemes and military plots left on the drawing board by Vince Houghton, who is uh, a historian or an historian, if you like that particular phrasing, and also the curator of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Hello, Vince. Hi, how you doing? I'm good. Tell me about this, Kitty. Yeah, this is a project in the 1960s, and someone at CIA had a sense of humor, because the actual real name of the project is Operation Acoustic Kitty. And the concept behind it was, can we take an average everyday house cat and surgically implant a listening device inside of it, a power pack inside its abdomen, the microphone going up into its ear canal to use the ears as a way to kind of filter the sound into the listening device, and then its tail could be the antenna to pass along that information back to headquarters. Mm -hmm. And this was attempted by CIA, and actually the technology behind it was workable. They were able to make this robo kitty into a covert listening device. The problem came, of course, with what anyone who's been around a cat for about 30 seconds understands is you got to have a trained cat in order to do this operation. And that trained cat 
those two words don't tend to go together yeah. very well. The CIA learned like the rest of us did. And so there are two versions of this story. One is, oh, it just didn't work. But what's the more delicious version? The straightforward story I tell is actually courtesy of a guy named Bob Wallace. And Bob is a board member of our museum, but he was the director of the Office of Technical Services at CIA. So if you've seen a Bond movie, Q in the Bond movie, he was a CIA's Q. Uh-huh. Now he swears that nothing really happened out of this. But Bob, he's former CIA, right? What is he going to say? Of course he's going to say that. But the other story that's more entertaining is that they actually figured this out. They figured out how to get a cat to do what they wanted it to. And this is not so far-fetched because this is happening at the same time another program at CI is happening called Project MKUltra. MKUltra is actually about 150 different sub-projects. And one of them was trying to use electrical stimulation on animals to overcome their natural instincts. And apparently, they got pretty good at this. They figured out a way to rewire the brain so it actually would listen to commands. And so the story goes, the CIA actually took Acoustic Kitty on a field test. They didn't go far. They actually drove up here to northwest Washington, D.C., along Connecticut Avenue, where there's a lot of nice, lush park areas. And they had two men sitting on a park bench. And this wasn't these weren't Soviet spies. These were just two random guys out for lunch. And they drove up in their spy van, and you can imagine, there's no documents about this, but I imagine it in my head as being either a kind of a black child molester van or, you know, some white van with like Bob's florist on the side Mm -hmm. or or Harriet's plumbing. Right, right, right. But inside of it is all these 1960s era knobs and switches and lights, oscilloscopes, and, you know, you can imagine it from an old Star Trek series. Right, making this sound... Yeah, exactly, right? All the stuff you don't know what really doesn't, and really secretly you think it doesn't do anything, it's just kind of there to make noises. And they put Acoustic Kitty down on the street, and they hit the buttons they needed to hit, and Acoustic Kitty made a beeline straight for the two men sitting on the park bench, which is exactly what Acoustic Kitty was supposed to do. This was a huge success. And so while they were thinking about all the wonderful raises and promotions they were going to get, they weren't paying a whole lot of attention to traffic on Connecticut Avenue. And as our our wonderful feline hero or heroine, we actually don't even know the, the gender of the cat, got halfway across the street. You can imagine what happened if you've ever been in D.C. and been around the taxi cabs here is uh, our multi-million dollar experiment got run over by a cab. And the last thing they got on tape was the screech of tires and the screech of a kitty. But the reason I don't believe that story is if it works up to that point, you know, make another one and release it on the other side of traffic, it would seem to me. Well, I I think that you got to the point where the trick was it wasn't just roadkill all of a sudden. It was smoking, sparking roadkill. Mm. That the real worry was, could you get this up before the Soviets got an idea of what you're doing or, or, or worse yet, if the Washington Post figured out what you're up to? And at that point, I think that they had exceeded their budget and the the patience that CIA had for that kind of thing. And there's actually, what we do know is there is a several documents in the archives that talk about the CAT pro- project and how well they did on it and essentially saying at this point, we're not going to pursue it further, but congratulations on how much work you got done. Yeah. And like a lot of the other projects here, it wasn't so much that this was a failure and they had to abandon it forever, but they were overtaken by other technology that worked better. You talk about kind of early crazy drone prototypes, but then real drones happen. Or, and this is one of my favorites, the plan to inundate Japan with a tsunami as a means of winning the war, which you get into some detail about how far they went along with that. But it wasn't so, it wasn't that this was this huge failure. It was, there was this other program called the Manhattan Project that did the job a little bit better. 
Yeah, this isn't a book full of failures. This is a book full of things that never got a chance to succeed or fail. Like the goat poop on the roofs. Right. <laughs> well, and that, that actually, the, the reason that never happened, the reason we weren't the first country to use biological weapons during World War II was the Germans pulled out. And so this wasn't something where somebody like FDR or an American general said, no, 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 we're not going to be the first ones to use bioweapons. We're not going to do this. This was a decision made by the Germans that stopped us from doing this. So tell me a little bit about how goat poop on the roofs was supposed to work. I'm sure they had a better, uh, a cooler name than goat poop on the roofs. This was an idea by the OSS, which is the precursor to the CIA, the Office of Strategic Services, which was tasked with finding every dirty trick possible to help defeat the Germans and the Japanese. And the head dirty trickster was a man named Stanley Lovell. And Lovell was recruited into OSS by the director, a guy named Wild Bill Donovan. And Donovan sat Lovell down, who was a chemist, and said, I need you to be my Professor Moriarty. And so they allowed Lovell to do whatever really he wanted to at that point. And he had this idea, and it kind of came together like this. In North Africa, there are goats everywhere. There are also really horrible North African flies that get in your eyes and your mouth and your nose and on your food and everywhere else. Flies were attracted to goat manure. So if we could lace the goat manure with a biological weapon, the fly itself would be our vector for us. It would land on the goat manure, pick up the bioweapon, and then land on the German's food or on their eyes or on their nose or everything else and deliver that bioweapon for us. Now, not wanting to take any chances, they said, all right, well, why would we work, you know, use normal goats in this case? Let's make synthetic goat manure that's even more attractive to flies than normal goat manure. And they built this biological weapon that they called the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse that was not going to kill the German soldier, but it would make them wish they were dead. And the reason for that is if you kill a lot of Germans, the Germans know something's up, right? The Germans know that you've attacked them with some kind of bioweapon. But if you get them really, really sick, it's North Africa already. It's not like the sanitary conditions are, are like you know Berlin. Right. They might just assume that they've got bad luck and your true covert action could remain that way. And you could take thousands of German soldiers out of the war. It does seem to me that many of these plans, foxes to scare the Japanese or pictures that would cause the Cubans to uprise against Castro if it was shown that he was uh, living large, a lot of them did depend on not just cultural insensitivity, but almost a mythical perception of the enemy's culture. Does that seem like a through line to you with some of these programs? Yeah. I mean, that's we've gotten much better at that, I'd like to say. I mean, the CIA... CIA especially realized that they did something called mirror imaging. And mirror imaging is a cognitive bias that people run into. Is you, you, Number one, you assume that everybody thinks the way that you do. And so you look at other cultures and other societies, think that they're going to react the same way you would react. And also you have this chauvinistic idea of your culture being better than everybody else's. And the mixture of these two caused a lot of problems, particularly in the Second World War, not against the Germans because they were white. And they were European and they were cultured, but against the Japanese, where we assume that they were backwards and they would, you know, fall to prey to mythical or superstition that we would not. I mean, we, we looked at them and saying, oh, they'd be afraid of foxes, you know, and, and overlooked the fact that most Americans, you know, believe that a, a guy 2000 years ago walked on water and turned, wa you know, water into wine and, and was born of a virgin birth. And now you can agree with this all you want to, but it's just as weird if you think about it in an objective way as a Japanese, but our culture was somehow superior to theirs. 
Now, this brings me to where this book was born. It was born out of you doing research, like 10 years worth of research on another book, a more, oh, I don't want to insult this book. I loved it, but a more serious book, a more scholarly book. <laughs> and I get the impression that this was the uh, detritus. These were the funny little notes that maybe you, you wrote to yourself off to the side because they surely couldn't be contributed to your big serious tome. Is that about right? <laughs> This is the palate cleanser. I had spent a lot of time working on another book, I, I, you know, talking about years in the National Archives. And the other book is, is relatively serious. It's academic, it's scholarly, it's coming out of Cornell University Press, it's intended to be used by universities and grad schools. And I needed something very, very different. And But actually, I came up with a lot of these stories, or I learned about a lot of them while doing that research. And if you can imagine you know, spending weeks trying to hunt down one document or two documents and then running into a story about glow-in-the-dark foxes or running into a story about attaching little bombs to bats and trying to defeat Japan that way. I just went on like, hell yeah, we're going to go off on this tangent. And I'd spent a couple days trying to hunt down these stories and I'd tra follow them and follow them. And, and I'd ran into the first time uh, a dead end because the document I found said this program had been canceled. And I'd wasted a lot of time and I was not very happy about it. And the second time I was even less happy about it. So I'm like, man, I fell for it again. I wasted more, more time trying to hunt down a, a wild goose chase. But the third time I said, huh, maybe there's something here. And maybe when I finish this incredibly serious book, I can, you know, try something completely different. So in a nutshell, what's the thesis of uh, the other big serious tome? So I tried to figure out why we were so successful in figuring out what the Germans were doing in the Second World War when it came to their atomic bomb program, and why we were so unsuccessful in tracking what the Soviets did at the, at the very beginning of the Cold War with their atomic bomb program. Yeah. Essentially, why did we know what the Germans were up to? Why were we so surprised by the German atomic bomb program? And I kind of tracked that theory because it was only a couple years apart, and all of a sudden, we got really bad at doing scientific intelligence somehow. And I wanted to figure out why. So if the idea and the tone, the world of that book is a world of huge stakes and serious people and life and death and trying your hardest, and the world of this is, is a ridiculous world of uh, cats with antennas in their tails getting hit by cars, but they're both the real world. Maybe write them in different tones, but what I'm... I guess trying to get at is whenever I read a book like the other book that you're describing, uh, it seems like it's not in the world of the quasi ridiculous. And it's not in the world where you, you just can't believe you can't quote, you can't make this stuff up. You know, one is the world of the New York Times. The other is the world of the New York Post or Mad Magazine. But they're both of the same world. So how do you how do you account for that? Is it that the world that we see as or or the undertaking that is supposedly so serious in life and death actually ain't all that? Or is it more that the stuff that we make fun of, there's a huge serious component. It's just with a tweak or two, it begins to seem ridiculous. Well, I think the second one, I think I tried to get that point across in the introduction to this book also is that, you know, we laugh at these because they don't happen, thankfully. These would not be something we'd be laughing at if they actually had gone through. But they kind of all come from the same place and this idea that during World War II and the Cold War, we were truly desperate because we faced what we don't face today, an existential threat from our adversaries around the world. And unless you're talking about climate change or nuclear weapons, 
there's no such thing as an existential threat anymore unless you want to say we're an existential threat to ourselves. But this was a true time when we were worried about our existence. If stuff doesn't work, you're willing to try anything to mitigate that threat. And by try anything, we mean the most desperate things you can imagine. That's what this book is full of. And so people were willing to try things they never would have tried under other circumstances. So the world is exactly the same. And the reason we can laugh at these, and the reason that we can kind of look at these, I, I wrote this with my tongue firmly planted in my cheek, is that they never happened. But certainly, if we were the only country to use both nuclear and biological weapons in World War II, I think we'd be having a very different conversation right now. From reading the book, I came to a conclusion that the programs that didn't work but came close due to a mechanical failure or something very detail-oriented, intrinsic to the program or the operation or the device, those were one kind of failures and understandable failures. And in fact, if you take away the ridiculousness of, you know, mechanical cat and just replace it with, you know, something else that was meant to be a bug or a listening device, but not a, a living animal, it probably wouldn't make the book. It's just something, uh, an attempt that didn't work. But then there were the kind of failures that depended on just a huge misreading of human nature, the large scale reactions, anything that ends with and an uprising would then ensue. Yeah. And I'm, yeah, and I'm wondering if our intelligence agencies have gotten better at realizing what are the kind of failures that are acceptable and productive and what were the kind of failures that had no chance from the beginning. Yeah, I'm, I, I, they definitely have. And I, and I think that what's really great about the American intelligence community, and this is not just us, this is a lot of other intelligence communities around the world, is that they're constantly learning. And they do take failure pretty seriously. And instead of just kind of saying, oh, we kind of screwed that up, they do every after-action report you can imagine to figure out why and how can we do better the next time. The most honest people you'll find are the ones that have made monumental mistakes at CIA and other places. I mean, just talk to some of the architects or the people who came up with the National Intelligence Estimate about Iraqi WMD. They're contrite. They're like, man, we really screwed that up. And they'll tell you why. And they'll really studied that kind of stuff. So I, I do feel like, and I'm not, a, I'm not ex-CIA. I've never been in the CIA. I'm not a spokesperson for the CIA. But what does impress me is the willingness to say, oh boy, we really muck that up. Let's figure out a way to do it better next time. Vince Houghton is the historian and curator of the International Spy Museum. He's also the host and creative director of the podcast SpyCast. Right now, I think their latest episode is with a guy who wrote a book on the precursor to the Mossad, Israeli mm -hmm. spies. It's really interesting. And his new book is called Nuking the Moon and Other Intelligence Schemes and Military Plots Left on the Drawing Board. Vince, great talking to you. Hey, thanks for having me. And now the spiel. Today, the president of the United States, these United States, announced that he will no longer be pursuing a question about citizenship when conducting the census. In this announcement, he was flanked by Wilbur Ross, head of the Commerce Department, which administers the census, and Attorney General Bill Barr, who heads the Justice Department and is therefore the personal attorney of the president. Checks notes. Wait, no, that's not true at all. Huh, that's weird. Anyway, he was flanked by the head of the Commerce Department. That is the department in charge of conducting the census, counting the people in the United States. The president, though, had some different ideas. 
let's not ask the Commerce Department in charge of conducting the census to count the people. Let's ask all the other agencies which don't do the census to count the citizens and the non-citizens that they may know about. I am here by ordering every department and agency in the federal government to provide the Department of Commerce with all requested records regarding the number of citizens and non-citizens in our country. They must furnish all legally accessible records in their possession immediately. We will utilize these vast federal databases to gain a full, complete, and accurate count of the non-citizen population, including databases maintained by the Department of Homeland Security and the Social Security Administration. We have great knowledge in many of our agencies. We will leave no stone unturned. Yeah, let's get right on that. Interior, how many citizens are there among the prairie dogs of West Texas? Department of Energy, how many non-citizens are currently in missile silos right now? EPA, how many polluted brownfields are citizens and which of them are non-citizens? Department of Agriculture, please give me a full accounting. The citizen wheat, the non-citizen wheat, and which green vegetables have a green card? Great. Brilliant. I know this because Bill Barr said so. Good evening. Thank you, Mr. President, and congratulations on today's executive order, which will ensure... Congratulations on your executive order. You did it! You did You acted unilaterally and without impact. You farted into the wind as only a great flatulator can muster. And oh, what a keen understanding of jurisprudence you demonstrated, Mr. President, when you said... The Supreme Court ultimately affirmed our right to ask the citizenship question. And very strongly, it was affirmed. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It was such a strong affirmation that you are not allowed to do it. And you're left to ask the Department of Transportation how many of our miles of highway are here illegally. When you think about it, that stretch of I-10, did it come here on a student visa and overstay its welcome? There was always something vaguely suspicious about the way it intermingled with State Highway 20 right around El Paso. The attorney general went on to further congratulate Trump and his vision and creativity. Turning to today, I applaud the president for recognizing in his executive order that including a question on the census is not the only way to obtain this vital information. And he went on to say there just wasn't enough time to get the citizenship question into the census because... The only way to even know that there was a census coming up in 2020 is to read the Constitution, which clearly spells out the requirement to count the public. And why would the Attorney General of the United States have read the Constitution? It was a bit odd, the words the AG used to describe counting all the people. That information will be used for countless purposes as the president. Indeed. Barr ended with another nod to his boss. Checks notes, not his boss. I guess Bill Barr worked for all of us and not just Trump. In any case, he did say this at the end. Congratulations again, Mr. President, on taking this effective action. And that brings to mind one headcount I've always found difficult, the population of a clown car. Is it five? Is it 15? How does it work? It's something to ponder. If you missed any of the rest of this momentous and praiseworthy solution to the problem that the Supreme Court so strongly agreed with that it didn't allow the administration to do what it wanted, I can offer this summary of today's announcement.
A citizen of the citizenship. Citizen. Be a citizen. Be citizens of the citizen. The citizenship. That citizenship is citizens we have. Of citizens and non-citizens. A number of citizens and non-citizens. A citizenship question. Many citizens and non-citizens are citizens of the United. Citizens and non-citizens. They're into citizenship. To include citizenship. A citizenship question. About citizenship status. The citizenship question. Citizenship question. We ask that you, the just listener, go back and count the citizens and also count the non-citizens because apparently the Commerce Department, which is the department that's supposed to do that, is now out of that game. And that's it for today's show. Pierre bien and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. They wonder, wait, what if we get everyone to call you Stanley for a solid week, and then at the end of the week, when you've almost gone insane, some guy in a bowler hat will show up at your door and say, hi, I'm Stanley, I hear you've been taking my messages. You think that'd work? T.J. Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcast, she has this idea. Okay, follow her now. You know how a cat's tongue feels like the substance that humans have manufactured and called sandpaper? Well, what if you manufactured sandpaper that feels like a human tongue? You think that would break the Russians? The gist. Today we were sponsored by Citizen Watches. Citizen. Citizen. The first name in watches. That's Citizen. We're at www.citizen.com. AOL keyword Citizen. Remember, that's Citizen. Non citizens. All right, forget it then. Oopro deproo duperoo, and thanks for listening.